Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. A couple of weeks ago, Chinese President Xi Jinping met with South Korean President Park Geun-hye for their fifth bilateral summit. The summit took place amid notable tensions between Beijing and Pyongyang, as well as amid nasty squabbles between Seoul and Tokyo. Does the Sea Park courtship herald a new era in China-South Korea relations and in regional politics? Joining us to shed light on these issues is Dr. Jonathan Pollack, a senior fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asia Policy Studies at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Jonathan, good morning and thank you for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be with you. During the Cold War, China was very fond of referring to its relationship with North Korea as one akin to that between lips and teeth. Yet, President Xi's visit to Seoul marked the first time that a new president in China has visited South Korea before visiting China's traditional ally, North Korea. Why is Beijing delivering this overt snub to Pyongyang? Well, I think it reflects uh, a long process of development between uh, China and the Republic of Korea. Uh, as well as China's growing alienation in its relations with Pyongyang. Uh, this is not a new phenomenon, but I think that uh, under Xi Jinping, it has taken several additional steps. Uh, President Xi uh, seems much less inclined than his predecessors to easily accommodate North Korea or to give it any kind of particular status and standing in the eyes of Beijing. Uh, more than that, I think that the extraordinary growth of the relationship in trade and increasingly in investment between China and the ROK testifies to a quite substantive relationship between the two, um, even in, even apart from the alienation between Pyongyang and Beijing, uh, as well as the questions of the tensions between China and Japan. It seems to me that this relationship is taking off in some sense. It has a meaning and a substance of its own uh, that seems uh, increasingly beyond dispute. Well, we do want to discuss that. But before we get there, it, it does seem like North Korea has almost gone out of its way to to trigger unhappiness from China, right? Uh, obviously, lots of people have talked about North Korea's continued provocations in the region and the uh, third testing of, of its nuclear weapons back in February, uh, the young dictator Kim Jong-un's execution of his uncle Yang Song-tek, a former high-ranking official with close ties to Beijing. So when you add all of these things together, is Beijing now making either a tactical or a strategic shift away from North Korea to South Korea? Well, I think at a, at a minimum, it is it is a significant adjustment in its relations with the North um, China has been very frustrated in a variety of respects uh, with the North. Um, young Mr. Kim doesn't seem really to listen much to anyone else uh, <laughs> other than other than himself and maybe a small circle around him. Uh, and the Chinese are are basically saying that they are no longer going to be inhibited from developing much more fully a relationship with the South simply because North and South are long-term sworn enemies. China has interests of its own, and they're demonstrating it. Um, of course, we don't really know a lot, or we don't know as much as we would like to know about the dynamics between China and North Korea, but it's really it warrants notice that um, you see uh, not the same level of um, visits going on, 
uh, a much more measured relationship, uh, and one where, frankly, the Chinese do not shy away from criticisms of the North, sometimes expressed a bit obliquely, but often not. So whether this amounts to a strategic shift or not, people can probably quibble depending on what we mean by strategic. Uh, But there's no question but that um, what we are seeing is the fruition of the relationship with the South, which in its scale and its scope, I would argue, has become far more important to China's long-term interests than its traditional relationship with Pyongyang. China is North Korea's main lifeline, as we know. But according to the South Korean Trade Agency, China exported zero crude oil to North Korea during the first five months of this year. And that's the longest absence of crude oil exports from China to North Korea in the modern era. Is China punishing North Korea for bad behavior or is there a risk of reading too much into this? Uh, there may be a risk of reading, reading too much into it, um, partly because um, uh, we don't know a lot about the actual character of energy transactions. If it is, for example, it is possible that uh, China has continued to transfer uh, some oil to the north, but doesn't accept uh, expect payment for it. But we we don't really know. Nonetheless, you are correct. This does seem to be the longest period of time. Uh, that in recent years, that China has apparently not provided energy assistance to the North. And I think we can take that as one indication of where they are trying to limit the relationship. This is causing, no doubt, uh, increasing difficulty in North Korea uh, as the North Koreans now search for alternatives, given how much dependence they have historically had on China, especially in recent years recent years. So it's it's one way that China demonstrates its objections to North Korean conduct, whether it uh, gets North Korea to inhibit uh, some of its other behavior that China objects to is, is a bigger question. And we don't really have an answer for that yet. It is, however, worth noting that although there have been expectations of many that North Korea would undertake a fourth nuclear weapons test, uh, this has not occurred. Uh, so far. Uh, And uh, some believe that that probably reflects very explicit warnings from Beijing to Pyongyang that if it were to test again, uh, there would be potentially larger consequences for the bilateral relationship. At least so far, North Korea hasn't been prepared to, uh, to test that proposition. No no pun intended. (laughs) Uh, We are speaking with Dr. Jonathan Pollack of the Brookings Institution. So is, I assume, and obviously lots of people believe that President Park wants to capitalize on the schism between Beijing and Pyongyang. And during the summit uh, between President Park and President Xi, China and South Korea issued a joint statement reaffirming their firm opposition to the development of nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. But are there limitations to their coziness? Are the two countries really in sync on this issue regarding North Korea, or are they still uh, fundamentally different in their respective approaches to North Korea and that there are just area that, areas that they can't really... Well, I think that there are some areas of continued difference in terms of how this issue is to be approached. Uh, President Park is actually leaning quite far forward in terms of her stated belief 
that the peninsula, that unification might not be far off. Uh, the Chinese seem much more skeptical of that proposition. Uh, and China's goal, even as they object to North Korean behavior, uh, seems to be, at least to some extent, to try to keep a lid on whatever might be, might be going on or could go on in the North. The Chinese have no interest in um, acute instability in the North. For that matter, neither does South Korea. But if you were to see um, uh, events um, play out in a way that creates that kind of internal turbulence, uh, that would really be the bigger test of the China-South Korea relationship. Uh, but that said, I think that both uh, clearly uh, object strongly to the persistence of a nuclear weapons program in the North. But I think that the, the approaches of the two sides to, to deal with it may not be in, in perfect sync with one, with one another. But of course, nobody really knows what to do about these programs. Uh, every strategy that has been tried has failed, and North Korea grimly persists and makes clear that it continues to grimly persist and to sustain its weapons program, uh, irrespective of whether it, it, were to, it, it tests again or not. Well, while South Korea may wish to peel China away from North Korea, which is grimly persisting, um, China hopes to capitalize on current hostile relations between South Korea and Japan, and, and Beijing would like to create divisions within the U.S. alliance framework in Asia. Do you think that the Park Cease summit recently um, uh, allowed Xi Jinping to succeed in any way in this regard? Uh I'm not even convinced that that was, if you will, a major Chinese goal. The reality is that um, even as the relationship between China and South Korea has advanced in extraordinary ways, uh, particularly in trade, um, tourism, uh, students studying in China and so forth, none of this, uh, so far as I can tell, has come at any meaningful cost to the relationship between the United States and South Korea. Uh, indeed, uh, few countries in the world today have a closer relationship than Seoul and Washington. President Obama has visited South Korea four times. That's more than he's visited any other state in Asia. Uh, there's a strong personal relationship there as well uh, between President Obama and President Park. So in a way, uh, South Korea is positioned uh, on the one hand to be able to pursue opportunities with China in very, very meaningful fashion. But this is not, in my view, uh, in any way closing the door or limiting the kind of relationship that South Korea has with the United States. Well, what, so, about, uh, what about Seoul and Tokyo? So although President Xi and President Park have met multiple times and they clearly have a very warm personal relationship, President Park has not met with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe even once in a bilateral summit. President Obama had to drag the two of them together to do a trilateral summit. And this has obviously been a huge headache for, for Washington. Uh, right. and, it, yes, uh, no, no doubt. And uh, the, the, the strains in the relationship between South Korea and Japan uh, clearly are worrying, very, very worrying uh, to the United States. You're correct. Uh, the only time that President Park and Prime Minister Abe have met is when President Obama kind of dragged them both into a room in The Hague a few months ago. Um, there are real 
real animosities here, uh, which is worrying in a variety of respects. So in this sense, you could say that um, President Park and President Xi uh, have a kind of a common common view of things. Uh, both of them have made their objections made, uh, very, very clear vis-a-vis Japan. Uh, indeed, uh, President Xi has never met Prime Minister Abe. Uh, now, Prime Minister Abe is likely to go to Japan for the APEC meeting in November. Um, you know, we're, President we'll have to Xi, wait you to see what what does or does not happen in that context. But I think that um, it was striking that if you look at their conduct in the in the bilateral summit in Seoul, that um, it is clear that the issue of Japan arose, but they chose not to mention Japan in the joint communique, though their mutual antipathies and, and, and suspicions of Japan were, I think, very, very much evident. Uh, President Xi alluded to historical animosities that China and Korea share with Japan uh, in a major address he gave to students at Seoul National University. So um, it's there. It's just that for purposes of um, defining this as primarily a bilateral meeting, they chose not to give undue emphasis to that, downplayed it, if you will, even though both of them very much, I think, are, think are, are singing from the same sheet of music. How do you think Tokyo or Washington should react to this increasing coziness between China and South Korea to the extent that they that China and South Korea are standing together with shared animosity and grievances against Japan for its sins from World War II? And we've got about 30 mm-hmm. seconds left. Well, I you know, I, I think that um, from my own discussions with American officials, I don't see any of them being overly concerned about about the collaboration um, with between China and South Korea. Some issues have been raised. You know, the Chinese have made an initiative for an Asian international uh, infrastructure bank. Uh, and there's some wariness in the United States about about the creation of such a bank. And it's clear that China is seeking South Korea's involvement in it. Uh, but beyond that, I think that um, that the U.S. and the ROK clearly communicate very, very closely on a full range of issues. Uh, and I'm sure American officials have been fully briefed on what transpired during during the summit. So, well, we will have um, to leave it there. I'm, I'm yes. sorry, we are out of time. Uh, we've been okay. chatting with Dr. Jonathan Pollack, a senior fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center and the Center for East Asia Policy Studies at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much. And I'm sorry, we uh, we are now out of time. Not at all. Thank you so much. Uh, please send us your comments on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. For China Takes Over the World, I am Ying Ma. Good morning. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Sino-African trade has exploded from $10 billion in 2000 to $210 billion last year. Much of China's investments on the continent have centered on the energy and mineral sectors, and numerous outside observers as well as Africans have accused China of engaging in a resource grab or, worse yet, neo-colonialism. 
Yet there is another phenomenon that is less discussed. Some one million Chinese have, in fact, migrated to and settled in Africa. Many showing up not as an appendage of a giant Chinese state-owned enterprise, but as individual dreamers seeking new opportunities and a new life. Howard French writes about this mass migration phenomenon in his new book, China's Second Continent: How a Million Migrants Are Building a New Empire in Africa. He is an associate professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and he is with us this morning. Howard, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Why are so many Chinese citizens moving to Africa? Well, you know, there's a complicated set of reasons. One of them is that. The Chinese government in the mid 1990s began to look out upon the world and to think strategically about opportunities for China. And Jiang Zemin, who was at the time the president, announced a policy called "Going Out," in which he said that China, in order to sustain its economic growth, had to not just be the recipient of investment and the recipient of foreign、uh, economic activity, but had to become an agent of economic activity outside of China. Uh, and so the Chinese state begins looking for opportunities around the world and identifies Africa as a priority area for for this sort of thing.、Um, this put Africa on the radar for, for for Chinese companies first, and then subsequently for Chinese individuals. Chinese state companies in construction and public works begin to go out,、uh, prospecting business and landing big contracts in Africa, and often sending 100, 500, 2,000、uh, workers at a pop. To do contract work, to build to build、uh, civil engineering and public works of one kind or another, and as this begins to happen, a certain percentage of the people who laborers who go to do these contracts discover Africa and decide, wow, this is a place that we had never imagined. Where there's lots of opportunities for us, where there's a relatively low level of skill and、uh, savings, one can make a life for oneself that may even in many ways be better than. More attractive than, than the life that they knew、uh, back home in China. I see. Your book describes your encounter with various Chinese individuals who have showed up in Africa. While they're all different in their own ways, are there certain common traits that they share? Well, so the largest number of characters in my book、uh, fall in under the description that I've just given of people who are、um, from the sort of Uh, working classes or lower middle class、uh, who have been attracted to Africa as this promised land of great opportunity, and this happens in part because these are people for whom the Chinese dream, if you will, hasn't fully come to realization in China itself. You know, China is a very crowded country.、Uh, it's a very competitive country, often a very cutthroat competitive country,、uh, and. Uh, although in the aggregate China has done very well over the last 30 years, there are many Chinese people who have not necessarily individually profited at the same rate, and so it's this kind of character who really fills the ranks out of these sorts of immigrants, and therefore dominates my book. Well, when foreigners meet people in China, and obviously most foreigners go to the big cities, what they find is that an overwhelming majority of the people they meet in China want to go to the United States, and that Africa is not really. A place that's on their mind all that much, and Africa, in fact, that a lot of these Chinese folks are、um, just a remote continent somewhere. But your sub interview subject for them is America, just not a place that they can reach. Is that that even if they wanted to go to America, that's not something they can aspire to. And so, is Africa a much more realistic place for them to go to to go and seek out a new fortune? 
Yeah, I mean, Africa is more accessible to them in the sense that with a relatively simple skill set and very limited savings, they can try to start a business and a new life in Africa, whereas in the United States, you know, this is a sort of forbidding competitive environment for for people with with limited means or limited education. And uh, so the other thing you have is a kind of pull factor where, you know, if people of, of a working class background or of a lower middle class background go to Africa and their stories begin to filter back to the United, I'm sorry, back to China, their neighbors or their relatives begin to hear how they have begun to make it big or, or at least to succeed in a, in a relatively, you know, positive way. People who had never dreamed of Africa as a place to go then begin to get the bug, and, and this is kind of an emulation factor or attraction that I that I've noticed in many of my characters. And, and what does the mi- what does the migration of a large number of private Chinese citizens to Africa say about China? Are there things about China they're all eager to get away from? Well, um, you know, there are common there are a few very common notes that one. Uh, text in talking to these sorts of characters. One of them is a a sudden discovery um, for people who have generally not been very worldly or had much experience of the outside world that there are these places, you know, that they have not really dreamed of, notably in Africa where um, there's a great deal of personal freedom where you can discuss things freely, where you are free from a lot of the kinds of oppression, I'm certain oppression is not the right word, but corruption. Uh, that, that consistently my characters complained about in China, where and this is very striking for me as a journalist who has covered Africa for many years. The, the prevailing um, Western, one of the prevailing Western images of Africa is of a place of sort of rank corruption. Um, but Chinese people come to Africa from this sort of background, and they say, "Wow, we, you know, this is a relatively uncorrupt environment for us." You know, that doesn't mean that there's no corruption in Africa. It's a statement about the prevalence of corruption in China. And and so even though China is also an authoritarian regime, and obviously there, there are authoritarian regimes in Africa, do you find that the Chinese migrants there do not feel the wrath of the authoritarian state as much when they go to Africa? Well, that's certainly true. I mean, Africa, is a, we have to be careful when we speak of Africa. It's a, it's a very um, diverse uh, political um, environment. You know, 54 countries... Uh, all different kinds of regimes. Uh, and the most important thing to say in, in sort of uh, a general statement is that, that Africa is a, you know, it's hard to generalize. About sure, sure, but certainly not all Chinese here. migrants have showed up in Africa's liberal democracies, right? Many of them, as you say, have showed up in, in countries that are that do have corruption, even if they're relatively less corrupt. But, but if one thing that they dislike about certainly. their home country is the authoritarianism, do they certainly. find... Do they find that the authoritarianism, whatever country it is that they're in, obviously I understand it depends on the country, that that is much more tolerable to them by and large? Sure. And well, the, the first point I was trying to make is that pluralism is um, a, the, the most general reality in Africa. You have some, a few very oppressive states, but most African states have one degree of pluralism or another. And so this is a big revelation to Chinese people who have been... You know, if they've given Africa any thought, they tend to kind of, on arrival, sort of have a kind of prejudice about Africa, looking down on Africa, not imagining that African societies could in some ways uh, be more liberal or more advanced somehow than, than, than back home. And so they discover 
a relatively pluralistic environment where the state is not, uh, you know, imposing limits on communication or discussion or ideas or things like that. And that's very refreshing to Chinese people. Um, uh, the authoritarian states, which do exist in Africa, um, by, by a sort of different token, uh, tend, you know, the Chinese state is, is highly competent in many ways. So Chinese authoritarianism tends to be very thorough. You have African authoritarian states, a number of them, uh, and although they wish to control everything, they don't have the same kind of bureaucratic competence to control everything. <laughs> so, even in, so even in many authoritarian environments, one can find a greater degree of personal freedom than one might, than one might have known in China. We are speaking with Howard French of Columbia Journalism School. How do the locals in African countries view view the presence of their new neighbors from China? Um, you know, again, I'm cautious to make about making very general statements, but I, here I would say that one thing that's very remarkable to me is that if a million Chinese have migrated to Africa over the last 10 years, and I believe the number is actually probably about twice as great as that. Um, so if a million or two million Chinese have migrated to Africa in the last 10 years or so, what's most remarkable to me is that there have been so few conflicts, that the presence of Chinese people as migrants has been such, so, such a small feature in terms of the national political discussion in most African countries. This has taken place with a relatively low degree of friction, I would say, um, and this bespeaks of a certain kind of openness of, of, Af- of many African societies. It bespeaks of the kind of problem-solving skills that these new Chinese newcomers have exhibited in, in inserting themselves in new situations and building relationships. Um, uh, and it bespeaks, I think, also finally of a sense among many Africans that Africa needs partners and that you know, if the Chinese are coming to do business and to employ people and to invest in positive ways, then, then they are welcome. Um, at the same time, I think that there is a, a strong streak of skepticism among Africans in many places about the Chinese state project vis-à-vis Africa. The Chinese state comes with a very slick kind of rhetoric about win-win and uh, strikes deals with very often very opaque deals with African governments that, that smack of corruption or, uh, you know, um, feather bedding. Um, and African citizens in many countries uh, uh, take a very different attitude toward that. I think seeing uh, the Chinese, the, the, the state-based push into Africa by China uh, in a different light from, from that of Chinese migration. In your book, you uh, make repeated references to the racism that Chinese migrants exhibit toward the people of of Africa, and you alluded to that a little bit earlier in our discussion. Uh, what about the natives in in various African countries? Are, are they racist toward Chinese people as well? Um, you know, I, I would hate to say that that. Africans are not racist. I think that there's racism everywhere in, in, in every direction, pretty much, in human uh, relations. However, I would say as a kind of simple generalization that, that, that African people um, have, broadly speaking, a pretty healthy respect for Chinese culture and Chinese society. Often, often their familiarity with Chinese culture and Chinese society comes to them in very simple ways via it could be something as, as simple and as cliche as, as kung fu movies. 
Um, however, these are vehicles of culture that are held in great respect and which bespeak of long traditions uh, and of an elaborate culture that I think Africans very often identify with in a very positive way. Um, where the most obvious streak of racism comes in for me is in an inability or unwillingness to differentiate among Asians, generally speaking, East Asians, that is. You know, I've, I've seen many situations where you know, if you have the least appearance of an East Asian, that means you could be Japanese, you could be Korean, you could be Malaysian for that matter. Right away, you are considered Chinese, and, and certain Chinese stereotypes are, are trucked out um, to, to, to greet you or to engage with you um, among ordinary African people. And this is pretty much based on, for the most part, I would say, not hostility, but, but, a, but a deep-seated unfamiliarity with the subtleties of East Asian peoples and its cultures. We've been speaking with Howard French, Associate Professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and author of China's Second Continent, How a Million Migrants Are Building a New Empire in Africa. Howard, thank you very much. Thank you. Please send us your comments on Facebook at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. For China Takes Over the World, I am Yingmar.